Hello and welcome to Fertility Springboard, the podcast series brought to you by Fertility Help Hub. I'm Eloise, founder of Fertility Help Hub, and over the series, I will be bringing you conversations with some of the most influential and inspiring professionals and experts around the world to arm you with useful and empowering thoughts and resources to ease your fertility journey. And don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to make sure you don't miss out on anything. It's packed full of inspiring interviews, resources, discounts and offers, competitions and real life stories. Today I'm welcoming my guest, Dr. Karina Dunlap from Maine in America. She is a naturopathic physician and medical researcher who specializes in women's health and functional medicine at all stages of life. Welcome, Dr. Karina. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming on. So today we're going to be focusing a lot around um, female fertility um, mm-hmm. and um, we'd love to hear more about the holistic care that you offer women um, and hear more about the kind of patients you treat um, and what your advice and tips are for people who are maybe at the beginning of their fertility journey or perhaps they're you know an, an advanced IVF warrior. So if you could start by giving a little introduction about yourself um, then we'll move on to our first topic. Sure, of course. So I am a licensed naturopathic physician. And in the US, um, North America, in the US, we go through four years of medical school training. Uh, We do all of our basic board exams, and then we do clinical exams, uh, similar to a medical physician. Uh, And then we go into areas of specialty. Some of us, about 10 to 15% of us do residencies. And I also did a degree in a master's of science in integrative medical research. So I'm a researcher as well. After my schooling, I went on to do both a residency and a postdoctorate fellowship in research. Through my residency, my focus and area of interest in was mainly women's health, but I also really took on a big passion in hormones. So I was with a lot of endocrinologists in my, in my training postgraduately. And I ended up in a reproductive endocrinology office in Portland, Oregon, is where I did my training. I actually worked in two different private clinics and really loved working within that group and with that kind of care. So my practice, I started to attract a lot of fertility couples seeking my guidance and just knowing hormones and knowing the standard of care workup, but also having the natural medicine background and then the researcher's lens, I was really able to kind of bring all that together to help support my patients. That's amazing because you must, you must find that a lot of the patients that you see perhaps um, are so focused on the medical side of their treatment if they're at the treatment stage, they might forget to look after the other aspects of their um, body and mind and, and, you know, holistic well-being. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I, I saw this big gap in terms of when couples or individuals are, are having trouble getting pregnant and then jumping right into big intervention like IVF. So there's a gap there between what's available and what's usable in terms of optimizing fertility, under, understanding what's going on if they're having trouble and what to do about it, options, having options. So I really saw that gap and I wanted to fill that gap and offer solutions for kind of an interim step for people 
and then be able to also help guide people if they needed to go into more higher intervention like IVF fast. I can I could say, you know, this is definitely a case where I think you should move more quickly and work with a doctor who can do that for you um, or a team. And, or, you know, we have time here and let's try some other things first. Mm -hmm. And um, what is it that you do when you see your patients and what kind of patients do you see? Right. So I see a whole range of different um, individuals or couples uh, for fertility care. Often I'll see couples when they're in the preconception phase. A lot of times, because I have a women's health practice as well, I'll see Mm -hmm women who are wanting to optimize their health, they're wanting to optimize their hormones, and they'll tell me in a few years, I want to get pregnant. So that's one group. Another group that I will see are couples or individuals looking to um, get pregnant very quickly. Maybe they suspect something is off. Maybe they're just nervous. And they're, let's say, kind of a closer window would be they're three to six months out from wanting to get pregnant. So they're also what I consider preconception population. If they're in a heterosexual relationship, I'll work with the male as well, their partner as well. Um, And then I also see couples who are having trouble getting pregnant. So they've been trying and aren't having any success. And and then I also see couples who have been through IVF and have not had success. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe they're in between cycles and they don't know what to do. I often get referrals from places like Boston IVF or other reproductive clinics for individuals or couples who haven't had success and they're kind of in this waiting period, or maybe they, they're seen there first and they're not a good candidate for IVF for whatever reason, and they'll send them to me to do some workup and treatment recommendations. And what kind of recommendations might that be? Of, of course, it would depend on the case, but what, what are your sort of um, most commonplace uh, treatments? So in the cases when there's a referral in place, they'll, they'll have different recommendations depending on what's going on. But I've definitely had for, for when I have a referral from, from an IVF clinic, often it will be for something really kind of unique. So maybe they have um, recurrent pregnancy loss, which actually is not a unique situation, but, um, but maybe it's more that they're, they have recurrent pregnancy loss and they're just, they've tried everything conventionally speaking and, and they want somebody to look outside the box. So often for me, what I'll do is I'll look at things like the environmental piece, you know, are they being, are they exposed to anything that may be decreasing their chances for an ongoing pregnancy and put them at higher risk for loss. So I'm looking at everything else that hasn't been looked at and um, environmental, the environmental medicine part is just a big um, area that, there's just not enough guidance in the kind of standard framework or standard conventional care workup and treatment. So I'll do a lot of that work for the clinic and for the couple or individual. How is that different to other things that the clinic may have looked at, like immunology treatment or mm-hmm. um, other tests to, to try and work out why there might be recurrent baby loss or implement, implantation failure? Most clinics that I've worked with that have referred to me both on the West and East Coast in the U.S. don't have a a standard environmental history questionnaire. So I'll start with that. So I'll go through a very thorough questionnaire. And based on that questionnaire, if I've identified any areas of um, possible exposures, um, toxicants, uh, metals, that sort of thing, then we'll jump into testing. And through the testing, which we still are developing testing to identify a lot of these things, but 
especially for metals. I can definitely do that. I'll look at metals and I definitely have caught some cases of high metals. Um, metals aren't tested regularly in the U S so I've caught cases of mercury, high, high mercury or high lead. Um, I've caught cases of high arsenic and dealing with those, um, toxicants and helping, um, either first remove exposure. Second, if we didn't need to do any sort of chelation, do chelation, um, or simply, um, remove exposure and wait out the time, timeline before um, wanting to get pregnant has helped actually helped tremendously in all the cases that I've seen for the heavy metals so that's um, one example. I was going to say at that point because I think it's fascinating um, and I know when I was going through IVF I was really concerned about um, what I was putting in my body even down to nail varnish so looking at non-toxin makeup and things like that um, and even concerned about things like the types of deodorant I was eating and definitely organic food and that kind of thing. Do you think that those sorts of things do play a role in terms of preparing your body and defining what may or may not be successful? Absolutely. So much. Uh, we are seeing so much in the world of reproductive changes to both men and women when we're talking about toxicants. There's a, a lot of research on it. And so things from air pollution to toxic exposure, what we put on our skin, what we consume, pesticides, um, phthalates the metals you know that whole all the toxicants and um, environmental health hazards play a huge role on our reproductive health and um, we one of the places I send a lot of my patients is I'll educate them on yeah going through all of their products for example so we talk about organic food um, eating organic food as much as possible but also we talk a lot about what products they're using on their skin and their, mm -hmm. you know, for their soaps and um, laundry and everything and how to identify the, the different ingredients that are either helpful or not for reproduction. Wow. Do you think that that is why there's been an increase in terms of fertility issues in the world over the last however many years? It certainly is one of our big kind of theories right now. And um, one thing that we're seeing really quickly actually with male fertility is how drastically different our normal ranges are for, for even when we look at like a semen analysis, for example. Take a semen analysis and the counts have dropped over time. Morphology, um, what we consider to be normal morphology or the shape or the what the sperm look like has totally changed over the past 20, 20 plus years um, mm -hmm. from what, what used to be considered the normal range to now has dropped a lot. Um, so that is definitely something we're considering to be a big player is environmental health. Gosh, that's fascinating. Um, and what are the other top causes of um, female factor fertility issues that you see? The most common female factors are ovulatory disorders are at the top. They're considered about a quarter of female factors that play into um, subfertility or infertility. And hyperprolactinemia is about 7% of the time, but you can also categorize that as an ovulatory disorder, although it stands alone. And when you look at the research, but it is also considered, it contributes to ovulatory dysfunction or ovulatory disorders. Then we have endometriosis next at about 15%, pelvic adhesions, um, which can be separate from endometriosis or grouped together, tubal blockages, and other tubal abnormalities. So we have unexplained category, an unexplained category, that's about 15%. Uh, uterine factor and cervical factor, those, those are very, very few percentage of the time. Um, a lot of people will focus there, but it's actually uterine we think is only around less than 5%. 
and um, cervical around 2%. And do you use Western medicine to help treat these patients or is it more herbal? I use a completely biomedical model to do the diagnosis, um, which is very much standard of care across the board. Um, but my approach to treatment is entirely natural medicine based. I don't, um, I don't prescribe ovulatory stem drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, when I went into this field, my goal was to do something that wasn't already being done well in conventional medicine. Mm -hmm. I want, there, there are many doctors who know and do are um, prescribing the medications very well. They know how to monitor. I know how to watch for interactions with any natural medication. So I think we work best just together. And I decided um, a few years ago just to focus on the natural medicine piece. An interesting question, actually. How do doctors perceive this, traditional doctors who are doing, you know, full-on um, IVF cycles? Do they believe in this support as well? Well, I'll say yes and no. If they have their nose and their eyes on the research that's been coming out, and I mean, in the U.S., our our um, association here, Reproductive Medical Association for Conventional Docs, is um, does a lot of publication on natural treatments to support fertility for different factors, male and female. So there's more and more research coming out about it. There's more and more research coming about the envi environmental factors piece that's playing in. And these are in conventional journals. So if they have their eyes and their nose in the research, um, then yes, they are on board and saying, yes, these things are, there are some other things you can do. But if they're unfamiliar with what to do, you know, they might just kind of say they're not sure or they, they don't think so. Um, okay. but, I, but I have just recently or last year, last May, a year ago this month, I was at the New England Fertility Society, which is a society here in um, the Northeast of the U.S., doctors who are looking to get trained in natural medicine. So I, I was there speaking to them and training them. Amazing. And I remember when I was um, look, looking very carefully at these toxins and, and ways to keep myself um, holistically healthy, it can be quite a, obviously an expensive way to live. And also it can take over your mind a lot. So you can start to get quite obsessive over it. So at what point do you draw the line and say, actually the things I need to focus on are X rather than absolutely everything I'm touching and worrying about throughout the day or putting <laughs> exactly. near my body? Exactly. But anxiety can get so, the anxiety when you're trying to get pregnant already mm -hmm. goes up. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's such a good point. Yeah, because um, it can be very expensive to add in things to the diet or, you know, organic foods, you're doing maybe some supplements. Um, and then just all the changes, if you're changing out your products, you're, um, you know, maybe just doing everything you can, and then just being worried about it is, is a double-edged sword. So where I draw the line with my patients when I'm consulting with um, different individuals is I look at what I consider to be the top reasons why they might be having trouble, or if they haven't started trying yet, the top things that have been studied to support fertility and in the research. And so I'm very evidence-based. So I'll go with those things and, and um, try to help them sort through the kind of what might, might be flashy or catching their attention, but doesn't have much research on it. So kind of demystifying the things that um, they can easily incorporate into their life without it overtaking their life. Exactly. Yes. Amazing. Do you think that these things help with egg quality and that kind of thing? Yeah, egg quality, that's a really good question. So egg quality is 
is a really, really hard thing to study and research because whenever we are talking about fertility and we're talking about pregnancy, we're talking about two gametes. We're talking about the gamete, the male gametes and the female gametes. So we're not talking about eggs alone. Um, in order to evaluate egg quality, um, we don't have a great test for that other than observation. So if we, if we, when we um, do a retrieval, for example, in an IVF stim cycle, we do a retrieval, we can look at those eggs and say, how do they look? But we're not doing a genetic test of the eggs alone. So when we put the sperm and the egg together, then we have two different gametes that we're talking about. And it's not mm -hmm. just eggs. So to talk about egg quality and to say like, okay, this, let's say a supplement, you know, pre and post helped with um, egg quality is very hard to say. But um, but what we are measuring and what are really kind of our primary outcomes that we want to keep track of are number one, what's the ongoing pregnancy rate and that ongoing, what that is defined by is how likely is that pregnancy to move beyond the first trimester? And number two, how likely is it to uh, move to live birth? And so those are the things that we want to measure. So if an intervention is given, say one thing that's given for supposedly for egg quality is um, melatonin that's a you know often is often a recommendation that's mm -hmm. given <clears throat> excuse me and um, what we look at you know in a pre and post study is how likely is that person who used that melatonin then going to have a ongoing pregnancy and live birth and those are really the most important outcomes to measure yeah I totally agree and actually also when I was going through IVF I was so concerned or so focused on the number of eggs that I got. And actually, mm -hmm. yes. my second cycle, which resulted in twins first time versus my first cycle, which failed, I got more eggs on the first time, but they weren't as good quality. With all, as you said, you know, when they fertilized with the sperm, they didn't make as good quality embryos as the second cycle after I had spent um, a lot longer preparing myself in terms of my diet, exercise, um, just really looking after myself with the things that we've touched on. I'm not saying that that um, is what made the cycle more successful, but I certainly believe that that self-care did play a part in having perhaps um, better quality eggs from it, even though there were fewer of them. I was so worried about my age at the time being two years on from the previous cycle, but actually it was, it was quality over quantity. Exactly. That's such a good point. And we see that, for example, in cases of PCOS, there might be a lot of follicles and then eggs able to be retrieved from those follicles, but they aren't necessarily the same quality as someone who's, um, who doesn't have PCOS. So we see in PCOS cases um, also rates of miscarriages higher, and that is part of that equation or part of that reason. And I think that, well, from my personal experience, and I'm sure a lot of people listening will be able to relate to the fact that when you're going through an IVF cycle, if you're doing IVF, um, you know, when the doctor is giving you, um, most people probably ask, like I did, um, how many follicles can you see at every scan? And often doctors can be apprehensive about saying because they don't want to get give you false hope or, you know, give you a higher number than actually they managed to get. And those days are difficult because then you end up on Google looking up, okay, well, if I have 12 eggs, then, then it take, you know, then some of them diminish, some of them don't yeah. fertilize. What does that take them down to? And then we know that as they um, grow and progress into hopefully blastocysts, you often lose some that aren't genetically sound. So 
it's very, very difficult to keep reminding yourself that it is more about the quality rather than the quantity. Exactly. And it is such a hard thing to, um, like I said, measure and research, but we do have some some idea of how these things are helping based on more of those other measurements in research, like the ongoing and pregnancy rate and the live birth rate. And what about age factor? What should people be concerned after being after they're 35, approaching 40 and over 40? Yes. So we see, um, we see age and reproduction being a thing, something to consider for both men and women. There is certainly more research on, women uh, and the age factor, which we see change a lot after the age of 35. Um, What happens is that the number of oocytes we have, the number of eggs is declining and that the quality of those eggs is also declining. And there's an increased rate of miscarriage, there's an increased rate of genetic abnormalities. Um, And so, but for men, the same is actually happening. Um, but it, we think that the age, kind of the tipping point for men is older, closer to 50 years of age. And um, we see male age factor contribute to a lot of conditions in the actual infant and the child as they grow, which is really, really interesting. Re- yeah, interesting research. Yeah. What kind of and things they- like autism and things like that? Yep, autism, ADHD. We see uh-huh. increased rate, increased rates of breast cancer if it's a female child um, from an from an older sperm. Wow, because everyone is obviously well. Everyone seems to be so focused on the woman's age. It's almost like <laughs> there's so much said about that, but men feel like not they're invincible, but that you know they could easily start having children in their late forties and it would be fine. Exactly, they kind of think of themselves as ongoing fertile (laughs) and Mm -hmm. yes it's not that you can't create a child but there's a lot to it does the sperm quality change genetically but the also the semen analysis if you were to do a semen analysis on that person without much change would change also over time so you know their their count um their own ability to create healthy sperm so not just genetically but also in numbers is changes over time Gosh, that's fascinating. There's a whole other topic on that, really, isn't there? It really, really is. Culturally and and socially. Yeah, an educational piece. And also, Mm -hmm. I've touched on this with um, other other experts before, that um, there really isn't enough education around this at school because there's so much around how not to get pregnant that people, um, people, you know, focus on their career, they haven't met the right person maybe, um, and it, it can be easy to kind of, leave it until you are on the later side of things to be able to be in a position to get going. Exactly. There's, uh, you know, people are wanting to feel very ready. Um, they're wanting to have their careers and really feel financially sound when they're ready, you know, and then oftentimes what that means is it's later on in life, um, for the woman and the man. And I agree, there's just not enough education and there's a lot of misinformation out there uh, celebrities for example having children mm-hmm. much later in life when it's not being disclosed that they either used an egg donor or they had uh their egg preserved yeah <laughs> so you know there's a lot of misinformation as to how they got pregnant i think people think oh it's okay you know I'm this age but other people have done it but they don't know really truly how they did it and so a lot of people keep that information quiet um and are we seeing a rise of this being a cause of infertility do you think Absolutely. Um, the group 
of people who are trying to get pregnant that's growing the fastest are people who are in that kind of advanced um, age category. So that is also part of what's happening is that we're seeing a rise in this population of, of, of those who are wanting to, to get pregnant, also contributing to um, increased number of people having trouble. Makes sense. Um, so what would be your, just to round up, um, what would be your top tips or your best takeaway message for people who are listening and they're wondering whether perhaps this more holistic approach um, would suit them and it's perhaps something that they need to investigate having just looked at things from a medical point of view or maybe they're at an earlier stage and they're not at treatment, not having treatment. First of all, don't underestimate the power of preconception planning. Preconception planning is something that could be that piece there could be so much more education on and at an early age. So when a woman is, you know, cycling even way in advance of her thinking about, and man too, you know, of them, of them having, if they think they want to have kids someday to just not underestimate the power, our bodies tell minimize our chances. If there's so much to that. And um, just the foundational fertility guidelines are so key here. And those are things that we want to consider like any obstacles to health. Are they using lubricants or herbs or supplements that actually are medications that are um, decreasing their chances to conceive or decreasing their chances to get pregnant easily? Um, What's their timing, you know, knowing and and having good um, education around that for um, optimizing their chances. Diet and GI health cannot be underestimated for both men and women. We're seeing microbiome changes play out in hormonal conditions that contribute to infertility and subfertility for women, such as PCOS. We know that in animal studies, for example, we can do a fecal microbiota transplant and completely change the parameters of PCOS. PCOS is the most common cause of female factor infertility because it is the top cause of the ovulatory dysfunction. Um, so it's the most common hormonal condition, but also the most the top condition um, causing issues with um, infertility for women. And, um, and then thyroid health is huge too. So just mm-hmm. knowing kind of what you're dealing with um, early on. So if you know you have IBS, you know you have a GI condition, you know you have you know, things that aren't quite right in your gastrointestinal system to work on those things early on cannot be underestimated. That is something I focus on a lot with patients. Um, To know your environmental profile, maybe consider, you know, there are three areas I really think about here, food, air, water. Um, Also, also I think the fourth that could be considered as we discussed would be kind of what you're using. So topically, um, but you know, what, how clean is your water, how clean is your air and how, um, clean is your food? And then what are you using on your skin? What's, what are you touching and what's close by those pieces environmentally is so important to go over and, and review. You know, if you're someone who is a, um, you like to imbibe frequently or you're, you know, like to drink or smoke, um, and, and there are a lot of questions right now around marijuana because um, it's being used more and, and it's more legal in a lot more places, at least in the U.S. <laughs> um, but, you know, how does that, how does marijuana impact your fertility and, and smoking? Of course, we know it does, um, cigarettes, mm-hmm. but um, alcohol as well. You know, I definitely see cases of I see cases of diminished ovarian reserve and premature ovarian insufficiency when people have more of what I consider to be like a rock and roll lifestyle, you know, that definitely plays into reproductive health. So considering how that, how that's going for you and where you can kind of fine tune and, um, 
really work on those pieces. And I presume that's the same for sperm as well, especially with marijuana. Absolutely. Yes. Um, Yes. Marijuana. um, We know we see more. The research is super interesting for marijuana, but um, we see it um, affect sperm and we see it affect um, women's um, ability to conceive and have a um, healthy ongoing birth. But also when we look at big data, there is an interest. There are some interesting statistics around it. not showing much of a difference, but I think we need to sort through the research much more because I think it is playing into it. And um, it's just, it's the research can be a little bit mixed. So you, you know, make sure to talk to your doctor about that one. If it's something you're having trouble with reconciling, if it's something you want to keep doing or not. (laughs) And then stress and social support is just, that's like, could have been at the first top part of my list, but um, really just how to manage stress, as you know, going through any fertility journey and then having kids is <laughs> it takes a lot of work internally to figure out how to manage those times that are hard. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah. and, and the last question, um, what are your thoughts on supplements? Yeah, so there are definitely some very, very good supplements to consider. Um, you know, starting with a really good quality prenatal. Um, and, you know, a lot of people think about just the folate part of it, decreasing um, the risk of spina bifida or um, neural tube defects. But um, it's more than your folate. It's really the micronutrients that are offered in a, in a really good quality prenatal are very important and actually do help with optimizing um, fertility for both men and women. Yeah. And I know for men, I'd like to give a, a like a good multivitamin too. Definitely. Um, yeah. I think we need to see more of that coming. Through. I know. I know. <laughs> and then I think um, it's harder to get men to take them. I, yeah, right. I, I'm, exactly. just, I'm just basing that on my husband's experience. Oh no, I don't need those. <laughs> Actually, it's a team sport. We both need them. Exactly. Right. And the more we talk about that, because it really is 50-50 when we look at the research in men, male and female factors, it's 50-50. Uh-huh. It does, it does, it's pretty much half and half. So it needs to be talked about more. But um, some other things get, that get talked about and asked about a lot are omegas, um, omega-3s. And we know that things like DHA um, can be helpful at a certain range of um, dosing. But um, but we also know that just eating omega-3s in our diet can really be helpful for fertility for male and female fertility. And vitamin D, what we know about vitamin D is um, that we need to stay in, a, in within normal range, but it doesn't have to be of a certain high range. It's just we need to see male and female um, normal ranges for vitamin D. Mm-hmm. And then there are, a lot, there are a lot of other supplements that are studied and that are researched, but you have to know really what exactly you're dealing with. So if you're dealing with PCOS, are you dealing with, um, you know, endometriosis, what are you dealing with? So, you know, are you dealing with male factor? Then you can really kind of dial in what somebody might want to use based on the research. But I think just giving, um, I see a lot of like broad generalizations being made in, in fertility care or, um, natural fertility optimization tips being given, but not focused on why those are being given or figuring out the, ide- the etiology or the cause of why people might be having trouble. But you really have to do both. You need to do the workup, and then you need to figure out the the treatment recommendations. But for example, 
if you're not testing your, you know, if you have a couple coming in, they're having trouble getting pregnant and you don't test him, he could have no sperm. He could have no live sperm whatsoever, you know, and you're, you could be spinning wheels and she could be spending a lot of money. They could be spending a lot of money on supplements when there's not the chance for them to, to be able to conceive naturally. So you really have to do the workup. I'm just giving an example of that. But I've totally. Well, that, that was my situation. My husband had, has no sperm. So oh, I'm glad yeah. that we, I'm glad if there's a silver lining that we found that out straight away when I had a test too. And we did it at the same time rather than lots of invasive procedures for me oh. um, without having him tested. Exactly. Good. Yes, exactly. I, I couldn't agree more that needs to be done and less people investing in when they don't know what's going on, if they're having trouble, really kind of getting an idea of what's happening first and then you can apply treatment and then, but um, you know, the foundational guidelines, like I was mentioning, environment, diet, um, timing, what you're taking, all those other pieces, stress, those pieces can play in while you're working on the other stuff. So, but yeah. Yeah. Well, you've been you've given us wonderful uh, thoughts and um, things to think about. So, thank you so much, Dr. Dunlap, uh, for your time. You. Um, thank you and so people much will be able me. to find your link in the bio. So, thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Eloise, for having me. It was such a pleasure to be here.